Almost everything I know about the courtroom comes from television, so that's not much. Watching Perry Mason and Matlock and Law and Order. Um, so I am clearly a judicial expert on all things. I'm sure a law degree would just be a breeze for me at this point in my life. But So anything I'm about to say, uh, Wessels, you, here you are, you can, you can fact check with him uh, later. But uh, trials conclude, at least on television, with closing arguments. Or summations. And so in that, the attorney, attorneys for both sides, they, 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 they summarize the evidence that supports their case and they draw inferences from that evidence to, to convince in a, in a case of a felony trial or something, a jury, uh, to, in, to be in favor of their, of their case. And, and I understand that you're only able to to bring up evidence in those closing arguments that has already been presented during the trial. You can't bring anything new in. So they're restricted to that. And so in a felony trial, the prosecution goes first, and they, they present their closing arguments, and the defense would kind of counter that and present evidence that favors their, um, their, their case, the defendant, and then the prosecution has one more opportunity to make a rebuttal. And to give one final appeal to the jury, and then it goes to the jury. But I thought of that kind of scene, that courtroom scene this, this week, is studying the text, and really a week before as I was kind of looking ahead, and that's where my sermon title came from. But Jesus is making his, his closing arguments to the Jews here, to, his, to the Jewish people. He's, he's summarizing his case. He's summarizing the truth of who he is, and, and all this evidence that he's laid out. And, and John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he's, as he's writing this account, he's given these signs to show us and to so that we will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so Christ now, he's, he's, he's summarizing this truth and He's calling them to decision. He's calling them to believe in Him. And so I say this as His closing argument. You think, what? We're on John 12. There's several chapters to go here. But, but this is the close of Jesus' public ministry. He's going to turn from the Jewish people. He's going to turn from the crowds and He's going to focus His attention starting in chapter 13 on, on His disciples. On the twelve, and, and that will be the case until he goes to his death. So he's making one final appeal to them. And, and then he turns to face the cross. He's going to die. And at the center of his closing argument is the cross. That's the, that's the highlight. It's time for him to be lifted up. He's been saying all along, we said this last week, it's not time. It's not my hour. Not yet. Not now. And now, he's saying... It's time. We saw this back last week in verse 23 of John 12. It's time. My hour has come. So it's time. It's time for the cross. Therefore, it's time to believe. That's going to be His appeal. And so what's clear in Jesus' closing argument is it carries this weight of urgency. It's now. Now is the time. Not not tomorrow. Today. I mean, parents, you, I hope I'm not the only one that can relate to this, but you, you have something you want your children to help you with, and, and so could you, could you clean the toys up in the playroom or something like that and say, can we do it later? Well, sometimes, yes. Sometimes later is fine, but sometimes it's not. No, I need you to do it now. You, Josh, and Erica here, you're, you're, you, you got, and, and Ashley, you, Lance, you got that evacuation orders, right? It was, it was, okay, voluntary evacuations. Then, it, then you got the alerts on the phone, probably, mandatory evacuations. 
So you had to make a choice. You didn't get to say, you know what, Thursday next week, it looks a lot better for me. I'm looking at my schedule. I think we'll just kind of wait till then if that's okay. No, you got to go. We had friends staying with us. It came up and they had 20 minutes basically and they were gone and on the road. And so, so you got to go now. Well, I'll do it later. It can work with room cleaning, but it, 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 that's not an acceptable response to Christ's appeal. What Jesus is going to say is he's going to summarize this evidence and he's going, of who he is. And he's going to make this a believe. Believe in me. It's, it's, it's time now. I'm going to, I'm going to call up Adia Williamson. Adia is going to come and share her testimony. You can come on, uh, on up. And Adia, you're going to hear from Adia and she has responded to Christ's appeal. And she's going to tell you about that time in her life when she did that, as, 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 the, as the appeal of Christ to believe and to put her trust in Him, as that, as that was made, she responded in faith. And so I want you to hear, and this is, this is a story of many of you, and our circumstances are different, but I'm, but I'm asking her to come and to share her story, and then we'll see, we'll go back and see uh, Jesus' word to us. So come and talk to us. Yeah. My life before I surrendered to Christ was a self-worshipping one. I did most of the things that a normal, secular college student does in their extra time. If anyone or anything came in the place of those things, I became depressed and often angry. I had much pride and was very arrogant. Even though I could often hide it from those who I respected or wanted to impress. Sure, I cared about those people who were closer to me, but overall, the love of myself ruled my life. It wasn't until about two years into our marriage that I was set before the mirror of the law of God. I was watching a show called Way of the Master. Suddenly, the spotlight hit me as the host talked about God's law and how to question someone as to whether they kept it or not. Well, as they listed only four of the Ten Commandments, I knew that the charge of guilty was laid on my head. Not by the speakers, but God himself. It didn't matter what I had chosen about, I had known about God in my past. What I knew at that moment was that I was broken before God. The God that I had tried to replace with my own selfish desires and therefore making myself first. He was calling me and changing my mind about my sin and who he is. He was calling me to trust in the one who had paid for my sin. Now I was able to understand the good news of Jesus Christ. I could understand why Jesus came to die. He stepped off of his throne and was born into his creation to live the perfect life that I couldn't live so that when he died, he would be accepted as the perfect sacrifice to the Father so that my relationship with him would now be a good, a good one mended by the Savior's blood. I could now fr- talk freely to him, and he hears me. I know him and will be with him one day. This is the hope that all of us who are in Christ 
have because he has risen from the dead and he's alive today and he's active through his spirit we can now choose right my life after Christ has been full of ups and downs it's filled with joy and yet I still have struggles when I first believed sorry (laughs) We were definitely in drought and seeking truth from a local church body. Through our time on active duty, the Lord grew us. He gave us more and more understanding of who he truly is through us studying his word. Through that growth, we have been able to see our daily need for the Savior, especially in hard times. The good news of Jesus Christ is good, isn't it? He has given us the desire to serve him and to help others see truth. We want to be able to share the good news with as many as the Lord will allow us. Thank you. It's a story of a a changed life. of, Of what we just read of walking in darkness and then Believing in Christ is light and, and, and a different, you saw the difference in the before and the after as she's, as she's talking about her story. And the center of it all is, is Christ crucified and risen. That the cross is, 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 is not just the watershed of human history, it's the, it's the watershed of, of your story and of Adia's story and my story if you're in Christ. And so we're, we're gonna see, we wanna see Christ. We wanna, it's time to, to look at the cross. This is what Jesus is saying here. This is what we need to see today. So it's time. And four things. It's, the first thing we're gonna say is it's time for glory. This is where Jesus goes. It's time for glory. It's time to glory in the cross. And what, what was accomplished there? As Christ paid the penalty for our sin and the goodness of that. So verse 27, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So Jesus' soul is troubled and he turns to the Father in prayer. This is a mini Gethsemane moment. And, and so, so, so we've, we've seen the humanness of Jesus before. So he's fully God, fully man. He's undiminished deity and perfect humanity, as, as theologians often say. The, the, the God-man. And so he's, he's free from sin, but he had real human feelings. And so the, he has this, this and he, and he, he's honestly expressing, expressing this revulsion at the thought of the cross that was before him. That's what you see here. But he's also submitting himself to the will and to the glory of God. And so as the cross looms larger in his view, he doesn't hesitate to, to tell others around him about this insides. which are just churning at thinking what's at hand. My soul, the deepest part of me, the, the real me, is troubled. It's, it's, it's uneasy. And so, so what he's about to face, if, if he wasn't troubled, he would be crazy or he'd be inhuman. But, he, but he's troubled. And so what does Jesus know about what's ahead? What's so upsetting to Jesus? Well, there's certainly the physical element of the cross and his distress and what's coming. And so he'll be beaten, he'll be whipped, he'll be, he'll be nailed to a cross, he'll be hanging on that cross for six hours or so. It's brutal punishment. 
But that's not, that's not it. That's not the main issue. I think the issue is this, is that, that Jesus has enjoyed unbroken fellowship with His Father from eternity. And He's going to be disrupted in a sense as He bears the sins of the world. So as, his, as He becomes, what Scriptures say, as He becomes a curse for us, as He absorbs in His body the, the full wrath of God for our sin during those three hours of darkness, it's just this break in the sense that He's never known before. He calls it His cup in Gethsemane in the garden there. This cup that He must drink. This cup of wrath. So what is it then that's going to motivate him to take the next step? What is it that's going to, 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 to compel him to, to give him the strength to go on, to not just kind of pack it up and go back to heaven and say, you know what, forget it. On second thought, they're not worth it. What is it that moves him? Is it warm fuzzies for us? He looks down and looks around, and these are wonderful people. That's not it. What, what motivates him? It's, there's more than one answer in Scripture for this, but, but the, the, really the thrust of it is what we see here in verse 27. This is a large part of it. What shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. It's this, He expresses the deepest desire of His heart, and that's for the, the name of His Father to be glorified. So, the cross, as Jesus says, will result in greater glory for God. Say, how? How does the bloody death of Jesus Christ result in glory to God? Well, there's, there's no greater display of the, the full attributes of God than in the cross. How can you possibly know the, the depth of God's love? How, how can we see it? How can we see it most clearly? You look at the cross. Do you, do you want to see the extent of God's wrath for sin? You see His own Son hanging there, enduring, being judged for, for our sin on the cross. You want to know what, how gracious God is? Will you listen to His grace as, he, as, he, as it's shouted as Jesus dies as your substitute? You want to know the mercy of God? Will you see it in Jesus' death that's the basis for your forgiveness? You want to know the wisdom of God? Will you see this master plan of redemption that culminates in this moment as Christ takes the penalty for our sin so that we can be His children. And so, so this is what we see. God, God is glorified in the cross and God affirms this. And So verse 28, then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So the, the Father is audibly voicing His approval of, the, of His Son's resolve to press on in His mission. And He does it for the people, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. And so this is the third time that God has spoken audibly from heaven. We saw it at Jesus' baptism. We saw it at his transfiguration. We see it now. And so the Father knows that the cross is this ultimate opportunity for his glorification. And so he speaks audibly to the world and affirms it. This, this, this cross, this instrument of execution of capital punishment is, is glorious. It's what we glory in. Only God could turn an electric chair or a gas chamber into, into unending joy and glory. And this is the song that we'll sing. We'll sing of the Lamb who was slain and, and He purchased with His blood 
And from every tribe and tongue and nation. And so that is what God has done through Jesus' death on the cross. It's time for glory, Jesus says. As he closes his closing argument, it's time for glory. And I would just say, this is, this is us. This is what we've been doing this morning. Rejoicing in the cross and what was accomplished. As Paul says in Galatians 6, may, may, may we not boast in anything except Christ and Him crucified. Second, it's also time for judgment. He says, it's time for judgment. Verse 30, Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now. Now. Now if we're really honest, we say, is that, is that really true? Now? The world doesn't seem to be judged. It seems to be continuing on in sin. The, Satan seems to be alive and well on planet earth and working his deceptions. What does Jesus mean? Now is the time for judgment. Now will the ruler be cast out. Well, the world is judged. And this is through the cross. And so Jesus said that His mission, He came not into this world to judge the world, but to, to save it. John 3.17 But what happened is His, his coming, it, it drew a line that divides people. Divides people. All people. Humanity. We've seen this throughout John. We saw this in chapter 5-6. Everywhere Jesus went, everywhere He proclaimed the Gospel, people divided about over Him. And so what, what people do with Jesus, it determines their eternal destiny. What you do with Jesus this morning may determine your eternal destiny. Whether you believe in Him, whether you reject Him. And so this is, this is what He means by this in John 3.18. He says, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So in that sense, the cross represents this decisive judgment on the world. And you consider the irony of this judgment of the cross. And D.A. Carson says it like this, the, the world thought that it was passing judgment on Jesus, not only as it perpetually debated who He was, but climactically in the cross. In reality, the cross, though, was passing judgment on them. Since Jesus was sent as His Father's representative, His agent, and the supreme divine revelation, rejection of the Son is rejection of God Himself. And so, it's time for judgment. The world will be judged. And then also Satan will be cast out. The cross seemed like a victory to Satan. It seemed like all of his schemes to thwart the plans of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. They succeeded. Good job. But... It was actually the moment of Satan's defeat. Serpent's head was crushed. The death and resurrection of Jesus sealed the devil's doom. The devil is a deceiver. And he's an accuser. He deceives us into sinning and then he, he uses that sin to accuse us before God. That is what he does. That is his activity. But through the cross, this is what happened. This is, this is why Satan is cast out. Through the cross, Jesus stripped Satan of the one weapon he had that could damn us. That, that, and that weapon was a valid accusation of unforgiven sin. That's what he could use. But he was disarmed. So his, his accusations, they're no longer valid. They no longer stand up because Christ stood in our place and faced judgment for us. And so the blood of Jesus covers our sin, all of it, if you're in Christ. 
The cross is this decisive defeat of the devil and of, and of his accusatory work for those who trust in Christ alone. The accuser has, has no record to bring against us. There's no record of wrong. We are, we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that wasn't just something that happened and then we started, you know, we started having our sin and, and so we're building up a record. No, it's, it's done. It's finished. It was nailed to the cross. He's been kicked out of the courtroom. All for the glory of God. And so he's still active today, we know. And so Paul tells us to put on the armor of God and resist him. And, and Peter says that he prowls around like a roaring lion. He's still a lion. He's still in denial. He's, but Jesus' death, his resurrection, it sealed Satan's doom. He's, an, he's still an enemy, but he's a defeated enemy. And it's the cross in the end that does away with him. And so the cross, it's a time for glory, yes. It's a time for judgment. It's a time it divides. And if, you're not, if you've not put your trust in Christ, if your confidence isn't in Him alone for your salvation, if it's in good works, it's in the past, and morality, of whatever, whatever, whatever it is, church attendance, if it's in anything other than Christ alone, then, then you need to be warned by this. This is, a, this is judgment. Be thankful if you have trusted in Christ as a dear and as many, so many of us have, and be burdened for those who persist in rejection, the cross reminds us it's judgment. And Jesus reminds us that the cross is judgment. Third, the cross is, is time, it's a time for drawing. It's time for drawing. Verse 32, And when I am lifted up from the earth, will, I will draw all people to Myself. Now, I've heard preachers use those words, and I may have used them before, uh, in the past as well. To, if we exalt Jesus, He's going to draw people to Himself. If I preach a sermon and put the attention on Christ, then people are just going to come flocking to Him. Well, as I preach for several years now, I say that's not, that's not the case. Um, there are people that are attracted to Jesus as Christ is proclaimed. But there are others who, who, um, who are actually, honestly driven away. They think that the message of Christ and Him crucified is complete nonsense. And others are indifferent and couldn't care less for this message and this Jesus. And so that's it's not really what these words mean. John tells us what they mean as he adds, verse 33, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So by means of the cross, that's how Jesus is lifted up. Patrick alluded to this earlier. Jesus is going to draw all people to himself. So what do you mean? All people will be drawn to Jesus. Clearly not, the, not even the majority of people who have lived since the death of Jesus Christ, since His crucifixion over the last 2,000 years, the majority haven't believed in Him. They don't, they don't, they're not Christians. So, so it's not a statement of universal salvation. Clearly it's, it's not that every person will be drawn to faith in Jesus. What He means is all kinds of people. This is in the context. Remember what's just happened is this, this Greek, these Greeks have come to Jesus wanting to see Him. They're looking for eternal life. So this, and He says it's the world. The world in a sense is coming to Him. And so not just Jews, but all kinds of people from all people groups of the world. Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, young, old. No matter what your background, no matter what your family history, uh, no, no matter what your social standing is. All kinds of people will be drawn to Him, to the cross, and can be delivered and be saved. What a wonderful word of hope is we're on almost the eve of our World Missions Conference and as we, you know, praying for Paul and Emily as they go out. Christ is drawing people. 
He, 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 because he's been lifted up on the cross, he's drawing all people to himself. He has other sheep that are not of this fold, and they must come also. He's going to make them into one flock with one shepherd. He will draw all those who are his to himself. And, it's, and, and this is the cross that, that makes that happen. So what he's saying, he throws open the door to, to everybody to believe his words. And so are you proclaiming Christ and him crucified so that, so that he can draw people to himself? This is what we're, this is what we're giving to in a task of world missions. This is where our attention will be over the next few weeks. And, and this is where our attention needs to always be right here in our own community, in our own context. Well, I, I must, I must press on. There's a fourth thing. It's time for glory. It's time for judgment. It's time for drawing. And then we've said this already, but this is really the crux of it. It's time for faith. It's time for faith. Verse 34 and following here. First thing we see in, in verse 34 to 41 is that so you have to believe while there's still time. Believe while there's still time. Verse 34. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. So how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Now, I kind of gave this away as I read that, but they're crowded. They're not asking a sincere question. You know, that's interesting, Jesus, and so we're really curious. That's not, this is a defiant, a defiant challenge that they're giving to him. This, this we and this you, those are emphatic in the text here, and so he's pitting themselves, they're pitting themselves against Jesus and what he has said. And notice, they, they understand what Jesus means when he says that he'll be lifted up. They understand that refers to his death, and that's, that's their problem. And they probably could have based their, their question, their challenge to Jesus on several passages in the Old Testament that say that the Messiah will, will live forever and the kingdom will never end. And so how can you say that the Son of Man's going to, going to be lifted up to die? But listen, the essence of their problem here, it's not theological. That's not it. That, that if their problem was theological, Jesus would have gone to other Old Testament passages that, that speak of Jesus coming as the suffering servant and that, he, that the, the Messiah will die, like Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22. But the, the problem with the Jewish, with the Jewish Jesus is here, is here, these Jewish hearers, is not theological, it's moral. It's moral. They're, they're walking in spiritual darkness. So he says, this is how he answers them instead of going to other passages. He says to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. This is them. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Saying, time is fleeting. Believe before it's too late. Now is the time. The world, the light of the world will be gone. This narrow window of opportunity is closing fast. You, you, you need to act on the truth that you've been given by Jesus. And this truth, as he says, it centers on the fact that they're sinners, they're walking in darkness, and they, and they need to come to Jesus who is the light. So he's, he's urging them. It goes on in verse 36, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And we had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Miracle after miracle after miracle that failed to persuade them of Jesus' credentials as a Messiah. It's water and wine and healing the lame man, healing the blind and raising the dead even. Lazarus, just a couple weeks earlier. 
But none of it would, could lessen the hostility, hostility that they have against Jesus. And so, let alone bring them to tr- put their trust in Him. They still didn't believe. How do you explain that, that the hostility toward the life and ministry of Jesus by His own generation? I mean, this is God Himself bearing witness of Himself and living a perfect, sinless life and, and, and preaching perfectly. Something you've never heard from this pulpit. And so, how do you explain the rejection of Him? Some responded in faith, but most did not. Why would, why would people reject Jesus as the light that God gave them? Especially when that light was authenticated by these powerful signs and miracles. Well, John has already told us the answer to this. And it was way back in John 3. As he's made this invitation to believe why Jesus came. He so, God so loved the world that He sent His Son. Gave us His only Son. Whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. Verse 19. He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And the people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. People reject God's light not because they need, because they lack of information, but because they love their sin. They love the darkness. It's all they know. And so there's this response, this negative response in general of the nation of Israel. Not everybody is hostile, but the, the leaders by and large were. And, and in the end, the whole nation lines up behind the leaders, the rejection of Christ. And so, why? why? Well, God said it would happen. And John quotes Isaiah here, and I'm going to have to really accelerate. He quotes Isaiah. Isaiah speaks some 700 years before Jesus was born. Verse 38. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what, we, what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So John, as he, as he sees it, he's, Isaiah in a sense is looking back on this time. He's, he's gone. He's been transported ahead. Looking back onto this time as the Jews reject Jesus. And, 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 and nobody believed Jesus when he told them that he would die for the sins of the nation. Nobody believed him. Verse 37 says that they did not believe him. And now look at verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe him. So the Jews, because the Jews would not believe him, in spite of all the evidence, in spite of all the preaching, in spite of all the miracles and signs, they, they would not believe. Therefore, God blinded them so that they could not Believe that what we theologians call judicial blindness, and that order is important. Don't reverse those two. And he quotes Isaiah again. This is from Isaiah six verse ten. For again, Isaiah said, "He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them." And this scene from Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter six, one of the greatest chapters in Scripture and one of the most striking scenes in all of the Bible. And in Isaiah 6, Isaiah is given this vision of, of the Lord seated on this throne in majesty in heaven. And so he begins in verse 1 of chapter 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. So He's sitting on this throne in stunning glory, angels flying around, singing His praises, Holy, Holy, Holy! is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. 
And in that moment, Isaiah has this, this awareness of his own sinfulness and his own unworthiness to hear what he's hearing, to see what he's seeing. And in that moment, God, God, God in His kindness, He, he cleanses Isaiah and He gives him a commission to go to Israel with this message of God's majesty and glory. So this is a powerful scene. But, but God also tells him in that commission that all of his ministry, all of his preaching, all of his activity, it's not going to make any difference. It's going to do nothing. The, the nation is already past being helped spiritually. It's, it doesn't, it's, it's not going to matter. They've rejected the message of the prophets for centuries. And so, so, so God is determined, determined already to send them into captivity. And so He tells Isaiah to preach, but don't expect any results. God, God determined to harden their hearts, to make them unresponsive to His preaching. It's judicial blindness. And so, I mean, can you imagine a commission like that? <laughs> how would you respond? Well, you know how Isaiah responded? He said, how long am I going to have to do that, God? How long? How long? God's answer until the nation is destroyed and carry off, carried off to Babylon. And so he, he, all of Isaiah's preaching, was all it was going to do was to fill up the measure of Israel's guilt and to lead to, to, to them being carried away. The centuries of unbelief and hardness of heart going to be punished by God by this inability to respond to the prophet's message. It takes away that softening work of the Spirit. And so what John is saying here is that the same thing is happening here in the ministry of Christ. History is repeating itself. Deja vu all over again. And so the proof is how they're treating Jesus. And this is, this is, this is why he's using this passage. And there's, there's something else to see. This is great. When, when Jesus, or excuse me, when Israel turned up their noses at Jesus and His miracles, who was it that they were really rejecting? Who was it? Verse 41. Look at it. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. You know what he's saying? Who is sitting on the throne in all that breathtaking glory and the angels are singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Who was that? John says. It was Jesus. How tragically ironic that these Jewish leaders, the ones that supposedly were longing for Messiah and, and, and worshipers of the Lord and keepers of God's law and His, and His worship and had the temple, here they were rejecting the three times holy Lord of hosts, Jesus Christ. Christ set aside His majesty. He came as a lowly servant. And He's, he's the God of Isaiah's vision. Come down to earth and these people wanted nothing to do with him. They esteemed him, as Isaiah says later, stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. That's how they viewed him. But not everyone rejected his message. Some people did believe, and John talks about them in verse 42. See this contrast. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. So I'd say here, it's, it's a time for faith. Believe while there's time, but believe and be bold. 
That's what I think the lesson is here. What, what did these leaders do? They believed in him, according to verse 42. Same phrase Jesus, John uses throughout the gospel account, John 3.16 and many other places, to describe this faith, this saving faith in Jesus. It seems that these Jewish leaders did really believe in Jesus. They passed from death to life. Some of the unlikeliest of all even. Even some of the religious leaders. Some of the ones who, will, who sit on the council that will, will be condemning Jesus in just hours really. To face death. And while they did believe though, the text says, they didn't confess Christ. They refused to openly, openly tell their, their uh, colleagues for those leaders, that they were now believers in Jesus. They believed in Christ as their Messiah, as the Son of God, but they were afraid to admit it. Afraid of their fellow religious leaders. They knew it would be a costly confession. They knew they would be expelled from the synagogue. They knew they would lose their seats on the council. They knew they would be outcasts in the Jewish community. They knew they would lose respect of their peers. They knew they would lose their position of influence. And so it's a high, it was a high price to pay and to confess openly, and they, they weren't willing to pay it yet. Yet. John tells us why they were so cowardly. Verse 43, For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That's tragic. So they're, they're willing to accept God's gift of life, but they're not willing to go on record in public if it's going to cost them their status. That's what he's saying. There are, there, are, there are Christians who still do this today, um, at least for a season. And in, in, in parts of the world where persecution is particularly intense, you see this. But this is not how it should be. It should, we should believe and we should be bold. And, and we should openly confess Christ, identify with Him, accept whatever consequences come and and. and what, what happened to these secret disciples once Jesus did die and rise and was ascended? Did they remain secret? I don't think so. Not from what we see. We, we know of at least two who didn't. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They were religious leaders. They were part of the, the council, the Sanhedrin. And John later says that Joseph is one of the people he's talking about here. And so Joseph was this secret disciple. When Christ was crucified, he said, enough is enough. And so he, 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 he goes public and he, and he goes and gets the body of Jesus so it can be buried properly. And, and that, was, that was blowing the doors off of his faith in Christ. And so believe, be bold. Finally, just believe the truth about Jesus. Believe what's true. And the rest of this chapter is a very brief summary of what Jesus has said already as he's as he's withdrawing in preparation for cross, this is his last sermon, as it were. And and I, I mean, I wonder that. I wonder how I would preach if I knew this was going to be my last sermon. I'm not trying to scare you or be morbid, but I, uh, how would that affect you? Well, what does Jesus communicate? How does he say it in these? What are the last things he says publicly here? First thing that you got to see is he communicates with urgency. We've said this already. But, but you, you, you need to see something here. His closing, his true closing arguments, his final rebuttal is introduced in a very vivid way. Verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, these aren't a few quiet words given as an aside. One thing I want to tell you before I leave. This is, this is a loud shout. This is the word here. 
It's not simple teaching. This is exhortation. This is a strong, forceful appeal to his hearers to pay attention to what he's saying. This is a impassioned pleading with people, with us. Don't miss this message. And, and, and so like closing arguments, he, he draws upon the evidence that he's already laid forth in, in his teaching and what we've seen throughout the first 12 chapters of John. And, and then he connects and makes inferences and, and moves to this appeal. And the appeal is to believe. And so we're, we don't have time to look at all of the details, but just, let me just summarize the four reasons that he gives to believe in him. First thing in verse 44 to 45, Jesus is one with the Father. Again, I could give you verse after verse after verse where Jesus has made this case already in the Gospel of John. But he cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. To see Jesus is to see God. To trust in Jesus is to trust in God. So that's first reason to believe in him. Second, that Jesus is the light of the world that dispels our darkness. Verse 46, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Again, a claim Jesus made over and over in the gospel. He's light. He's light. Without Christ, you're in darkness. But there's light in him if you believe. Third, Jesus believed because Jesus came to save us, not judge us. Verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that day. So the primary purpose of his first coming is not to, not to judge, but to save. To provide salvation through a substitutionary death on the cross. There will be a last day, he says. There will be a last day of judgment. And it, but, but Jesus offers a way of escape. A way to escape that last day. A way to escape that judgment. And so pardon is available. It's a free gift. Believe. And that's the last thing. Jesus gives eternal life. Reason to believe. He gives eternal life. And again, he's made this case so many times. Verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. So he's not sharing his own invented religious ideas. He's not. He's, he's, a, he's the faithful messenger of the Father who sent him. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, what, what I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So the Father gave him a commandment. A commandment is the most important thing in the world. It's eternal life. And so his last urgent appeal, he cries out, Believe in me! Believe in me because I am one with the Father. To trust me is to, 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 to have the Father believe in me because I am light to you who are in darkness. If you're, if you're in darkness today, friends... You came in here and it's sunny outside and, and you're not in the clouds and the hurricane physically, but, but you, there is darkness in your soul. Moral, spiritual darkness. Jesus says, I'm light. I give light and life. Believe in me because I will judge those who reject me. But I didn't come to, to bring judgment. I came to save. And believe in me because I give eternal life to those who believe. Oh, you can, you can leave this room, you know, like kids when they're asked to clean the room. I'll do it later. Can I do it later? But that I'll, I'll do it later attitude is very dangerous when it comes to things of eternal value like this. Jesus' closing words, nine times in this closing words, believe, 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 believe. 
by a simple step of faith, by believing. You can pass from spiritual darkness to the light of salvation in Jesus Christ. You can do that right now. You can do that today. And for those of us who have believed, we, we said this at the beginning of our study of John, we need to believe more. The faith is not just something we possess and then it just kind of stays there. No, it's something that needs to grow. We need to believe more deeply in Christ and His sufficiency and who He is and, and own Him. And so, so we have weak faith that needs to be made stronger. And we're, we have an opportunity as we're going to come, as, as for those who are in Christ, we're going to come and eat and drink at the table and, 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 and do that. that. Part of the value of this ordinance that Christ has given us to strengthen our faith, to strengthen our confidence in Him. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone today that's here that they have not yet believed in Jesus Christ, they still are in darkness, they still don't know the gift of eternal life, God, I pray that they would, they would believe in Jesus Christ today. That they would renounce their trust in themselves, in their morality, in their family, um, in their family, in their in some religious ritual that they've taken part in, and they will say, I, I got nothing to bring. Only my sin, but, I, but I, I trust in Christ. God, if there's anyone who hasn't put, that, put their faith in Him, I pray that today would be their day of salvation, that they would not leave thinking, I'll do it later. And, and for all of us, God, strengthen our faith. We are so... We, we, we have such weakness of faith that remains, God, just like the disciples, and we point fingers at them, and... But, but it's us. Grow. We need, to, we need deepen confidence in Christ. And so even as we come to the table, grow us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.